Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our archived shows by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. So today we have an international-themed show. My interview today is with Ellie Nakajima, who founded Animal Alliance Asia. And she's going to tell us all about the incredible work that she and her numerous representatives all across Asia are doing to help animals. And in keeping with the international theme, I'm going to start us off with a story that stretches from Mexico to China. So I haven't talked about fish for a while, and I I want to find more opportunities to talk about fish, and, and I will uh, coming up in the new year. But I came across this really powerful documentary that I wanted to share with you. It's called Sea of Shadows, and it's new on Disney+. Plus. It's, it's not a new documentary. The documentary was made in 2019. It's just new to Disney+. Plus. And, and we love Disney+, Plus. I will say, not only for all the fun new Star Wars content and uh, the marvelous Marvel uh, content, uh, nice marvelous distractions <laughs> there, uh, but, uh, but also they have a partnership with National Geographic. I think, I think they own Nat Geo, actually Disney owns Nat Geo. And we love the nature documentaries about animals and wild places. And there was this new one called Sea of Shadows, new, again, just new to Disney. And when I clicked on it, uh, there was this image of a kid, <laughs> I say a kid, he was a young man on a boat, uh, on a sea shepherd boat, and he had a sea shepherd shirt on. And I was like, sea shepherd, I'm in. So I didn't even really know what it was about. And I just started watching it. And it was a really, really powerful, really intense story. Wow. And I just, I wanted to share it with you. And, and I don't know that I'm necessarily recommending this film. I mean, it was really well done. It was really well done. And it was really uh, fun to watch, I felt, just for the uh, good quality and the story. But it was sad. It was a lot of dire situations for animals and video footage of sea life in distress. So... Uh, so know that going in, you know, if you want to watch it, there, there's also really no happy ending. But uh, all that said, I think it's an important story to be told. And just really, really interesting in a lot of ways. So I wanted to tell you the story of this film. So if you were a fan of Whale Wars, the TV series that was on Animal Planet about Sea Shepherd, this film is very reminiscent of Whale Wars. So the story takes place in the Sea of Cortez in Mexico, and this is a rich marine area. Jacques Cousteau called it the aquarium of the planet because it was so full of sea life. And, and kids, if you don't know who Jacques Cousteau was, uh, please Google him. He was a true pioneer of marine biology and marine journalism. And I remember watching his documentaries on the oceans when I was a kid in the 70s. Anyway, so this area has been decimated by fishing for decades, not only for subsistence fishing and commercial fishing for seafood, but also to catch an endangered fish called the Totoaba because their swim bladders are a delicacy, considered delicacy in Chinese cuisine and also believed to have medicinal properties and Chinese buyers will pay exorbitant prices for this organ, their swim bladder. I've talked about what a swim bladder is and what it does in a fish's body in my Reason for Vegan series about fish. And this area, the Sea of Cortez, is also the only home of a very endangered small whale called the vaquita, which means little cow. And they're about the size of a dolphin, maybe a little smaller actually than a dolphin. And at the time of the filming of this, of this movie, there were fewer than 30 of them left. And because they are so endangered, 
the Mexican government has banned fishing in all of the Sea of Cortez. So that's really amazing. They are trying to reestablish the vaquita. However, because of the high value of this other fish's swim bladder, the Totoaba's swim bladder, there's been this multi-million dollar black market created. They called it the cocaine of the sea. And there are these illegal nets, miles and miles of gill nets, which are just these this wall of netting that they leave in the ocean and then come back for. Uh, and it's just killing everything that swims into them. They call they called them the walls of death. One activist said it's extinction happening in real time, driven by greed and profit. So there's some real heroes in this story. This film, it the film feels a lot like a crime drama, like a reality show. There's lots of cloak and dagger and interviews with people with blurred out faces and distorted voices. There's uh, there's this team of, of environmentalists from uh, Earth League International who are investigating the network for the bladders and they're like these ex-FBI guys who used to like bust Mexican mafias and drug cartels and now they're working for the planet and for the animals and they're doing all this investigative work to look for the El Chapo really of the Totoaba black market. It's really dangerous work. These are massive corruption networks and you know just protests and conservation plans just aren't going to cut it, right? That's that's what got the fishing bans in the first place, but that didn't stop the killing. That goes, you know, now that goes much deeper. So these are really dangerous elements that these activists are dealing with. And then we get introduced to the Sea Shepherd boats in the area. So what Sea Shepherd does is they go out at night, they start their work at night, and they launch these night vision drones into the Sea of Cortez. And they're looking for the poachers who are who go out at night for the nets. They gather the nets at night because it's illegal, right? And they, you know, pull in all the dead and dying sea life looking for those Totoabas for their swim bladders. So when the drone spots a boat, the, the Sea Shepherd drones, when they spot a boat, then the, the poachers know they're caught, right? And they will run. And if they're, they're hauling in a net, they'll actually cut the net and just run. They just take off. And Sea Shepherd is working with the Mexican Navy, and then they call the Mexican Navy, and they give the poachers coordinates. And then the Mexican Navy go out after them. It's, it's very dramatic, very Whale Wars-esque. Uh, and, but the stakes are, are really even higher for this crew. They are not just dealing with whalers these are cartels and they actually have these mexican navy guys on the sea shepherd decks with guns like protecting the sea shepherd boats it's it is really intense in in true whale wars fashion there was this this scene where some of the poachers came and they circled around the sea shepherd ship trying to intimidate them and the mexican navy came to help and this exciting you know chase ensued it's if if you loved whale wars it it really reminds you and and kind of brings you back to those whale wars days so Sea Shepherd then goes to the net, like after they've caught the poachers or, you know, uh, flagged the Mexican Navy about their whereabouts, they go to the net and they haul in the net so that the poachers can't go back for it and, you know, get everything or sell anything. And they showed video footage of the nets being hauled onto the ship and there were sea turtles and stingrays and hammerhead sharks and all these fish, most of them dead. But then they came across one of the stingrays that was alive and the whole crew rushed over to help cut the ray free from the net and they gently put him back into the water and they all cheered. So they're saving some lives in the process. They also hauled in a dead Totoba and they cut him open and took out his swim bladder 
that's worth tens of thousands of dollars to these traffickers. And they destroyed it just to be sure that it couldn't be found and used. It was it was really, really powerful to see these activists working through the night, hauling in these nets, really difficult, dangerous work, so much death. It was so intense. I mean, you know, as someone who gets seasick on the commuter ferry to San Francisco... <laughs> You know, I'm just in awe of these activists out there, these people around the world who are risking their lives to save this planet. It's incredibly, incredibly inspiring. So the film was disappointing to some degree in that it was very environmentally focused. It was focused mainly on the killing of the vaquita, this whale that's going extinct, and how there's only 30 left and that they need to protect them, but not really on the direct plight of the Totoba and, and all those animals that are being killed in the gill nets that absolutely deserve to live as well, just as much as the vaquita. You know, this is this is a common problem with National Geographic and 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 really with the larger conservation community. Animals are seen as a group, as a species, right? And and their worth is gauged around their benefit to the ecosystem or or not. Uh, and you know that that individual animal, the individual animals are not considered. The Sea Shepherd guy does have this moment, this beautiful moment, where he talks about every single life and that every single life is precious and important. That was a really nice moment, but that was just the one one moment in the film. The overall feeling of it is focused on the vaquita. And, you know, that's that's just a, a problem, a larger problem in the environmental community. And I think we're going to talk more about this actually coming up in a few episodes when I interview uh, Ryuji Chua. He's a fantastic activist who was recently on The Daily Show, and he has a film about fish that he's created and a TEDx talk about uh, this issue, actually, that I just mentioned, the worth of the species without regard to the individual animal that is so often uh, what I think animal rights activists see as a problem in the environmental movement that we need to care about the individual just as much as the group, just as much as the biodiversity. Uh, and, and, and I see them as going hand in hand. I mean, we, we need to care about both, right? Yes, we need to care about the biodiversity, the animals, the extinction problem, of course, but we also need to care about the individual animal just as much. Uh, their lives matter to them just as much. Anyway, we'll get, we'll get more into that, I think, with Ryuji coming up in the new year. I believe his interview will be uh, early in the new year. So just to wrap up, I think that this film was humanity's best and humanity's worst <laughs> converging at the same point on the planet in the Sea of Cortez. It's 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 a poignant, really horrific drama, and I hope that it gets people interested in animals, interested in animal rights, interested in the oceans and the plight of the oceans. Um, I, I was I was I was left thinking about the hundreds of people involved in trying to help with this situation on every level, the best of humanity. I didn't even mention the journalist. There was this journalist in Mexico who has been reporting on this issue for a while on his TV show. And I think that's that he is what inspired this film. Uh, these people are risking their lives, literally. And I really hope that this that this film inspires us, inspires us to do more, to protect the oceans, to protect sea life. It may be too late for the vaquita but hopefully not for all of the ocean's animals. Again, the film is called The Sea of Shadows, if you'd like to check it out. And let's now move into our interview with Ellie and hear about how activists across Asia are working to help animals. All right, today we have Ellie Nakajima. 
and she is the founder and director of Animal Alliance Asia, a movement-building organization dedicated to empowering and training animal justice advocates across Asia. She was born in Japan and currently is based in the UK, and she's passionate about building a more inclusive, culturally relevant, and effective movement across Asia. And prior to founding the Animal Alliance Asia, Ellie worked for 10 years in filmmaking and media and applied this experience to become one of the first Japanese language educational content providers for vegan advocates in Japan. So welcome to the podcast, Ellie. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, we're excited to talk to you and... So we like to start with a get to know you question, and we are curious mm-hmm. as to why you went vegan and when you went vegan. What what was your vegan journey? Sure. So I think I went vegan about seven years ago now, um, but the whole process um, happened in London, UK. So I have to say that I was super privileged uh, to to go through that process here because, um, as you might all know, London is one of the most vegan-friendly cities in the world. Mm. So I was spoiled with options <laughs> and I, I didn't have difficulty, you know, looking for alternatives. So that was quite easy for me, I have to say. Um, but why I went vegan uh, was because because I think my aha moment was when I watched this uh, video from uh, Beagle Freedom Project, mm. uh, where uh, a bunch of beagles were being released into the the grass, basically outside from their cages for the first time in their lives. And it really broke my heart to see them they didn't know how to walk on the grass because they've never done that in their lives. And it literally broke my heart because I grew up with a beagle dog when I was a child uh, in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I just knew like how playful they can be. Um, so the contrast uh, was just so saddening to see. That then uh, encouraged me to uh, research a little bit more about why these beagles were kept in cages. And I soon realized that they were there for experiments. And so I soon stopped consuming any products that were experimented on animals. I think things like shampoo, um, body wash and cosmetics and things like that. And for some reason, I thought I was doing enough. (laughs) But then I started going to different animal rights uh, festivals. And then soon I realized that, yeah, like, what's the difference between these dogs that I really care about and other animals that I am still consuming? So I started uh, doing some digging up and uh, started watching some videos on how they're treated, how they're slaughtered. And again, like I did that maybe all of that in one night and I just cried for the whole night (laughs) and next day I was vegan I just didn't want to consume anything animal related anymore so that's how I went vegan so avoiding animal animal tested products came first that's kind of unusual and then just in one night you went from actually meat eating all the way to vegan well, I I think I stopped eating meat first. So when I watched all these videos, I stopped eating meat. Uh-huh. And again, I thought I was doing enough for like one year. <laughs> and um, because especially coming from Japan, fish was like a really big part of our diet, right? So any Japanese uh, food that I would cook, there was some kind of fish involved. And I was trying not to think about it for a year. And uh, yeah, it took me a year to kind of just sit down and think right I'm now ready to face the reality let's watch everything about fish and dairy I was still consuming so it took me a year to go vegan from being pescatarian basically okay okay yeah still that's that's not a lot of time a year so (laughs) good (laughs) wonderful wonderful all right well so now fast forward you are the founder and director of Animals Alliance Asia Tell us about this organization, what inspired you to start this organization, and and what you do. Sure. Um, So after I went vegan, um, I 
like it took me like literally a day to want to start advocating for animals like as uh-huh. soon as I learned <laughs> the reality behind uh, animal agriculture I just wanted to speak uh, yeah. for them and I think that's the case for a lot of vegans yeah so I started doing that in the UK um, doing a street outreach and all the things that you know vegans do and um it was very um like empowering to do that I really enjoyed doing that and then I obviously wanted to do something similar back home in Japan um so whenever I went home for holiday or to see my family I joined in a very small group of people very passionate especially women uh, doing similar things on the street I felt quite confident going there and doing that in Japan because I had experience in London but then I was faced with this reality that the situation was so different obviously now that I think about it I was very ignorant talking to people on the street the experience their their reaction was so different from what I was used to here in London and uh, I just realized that we need obviously we need more culturally appropriate way of messaging and talking to people So that was a big realization for me. And that's why I started my uh, YouTube channel in uh, Japanese language to talk about uh, veganism and animal rights in Japanese language. And at that time, there really wasn't anyone else doing that on YouTube yet. Um, So I thought someone has to do it. So um, I have a media background. I, I had been working as a camera person, so I wasn't comfortable at all to be on the other side of camera, but I felt like someone had to do it. Mm. I wanted to be that person. And so I started advocating for animals in Japanese, and then I saw the need for advocacy training in Japanese because I had the privilege to attend some international animal rights conferences in Europe and in the US. And I I just really enjoyed meeting other animal advocates and learn from each other and become more uh, better advocates for animals. And I thought that there was a lack of learning opportunity like that in Japan. So I kind of switched my content of my YouTube channels. So the target audience of my YouTube channel was really non-vegan people. And I was trying to talk to them about what veganism was. But then because I realized that there was lack of learning space, I kind of changed up my content of YouTube channel to talk to people who are already vegans, who want to advocate for animals, but having a hard time doing it. So I started talking about how to communicate better, how to talk to people about veganism without offending people, which is very difficult. Mm -hmm. And I started talking about movement building, history of other social justice movements, and things like that. While I was doing that, I had a privilege of meeting my co-founder from Hong Kong. She was studying in London at the time. And she had very, very, very similar experience to me where she felt like there was lack of training, learning space for advocates in Hong Kong. So we were like, why don't we create uh, such a space for advocates across Asia? Because obviously Asia is so diverse. Um, We have 4.7 billion people in Asia. The culture is massively diverse. But at the same time, there are some similarities between some countries. So we were like, we can definitely learn from each other. And it would be nice to have that collaborative space where we can learn from each other. So that's how we decided to create a learning space for advocates. And we, we did our first Animal Advocacy Conference Asia back in 2020 so it's been two years and a bit and we're holding this is our third year with our conference and so I just wanted to put it out there that probably the only reason why I'm here being able to speak with you today is because I speak English and that is a huge privilege that I have that I'm aware of and I just want to say that there is absolutely no way I can represent the voices of all the people in our movement in Asia. Um, But I will try my best to uh, reflect on and share the conversations that we've been having with people on the ground today. Yeah. And and I'm wondering, you you mentioned that it's very diverse in Asia, Mm -hmm. but are there 
unique challenges that come with advocating for animals. Like you mentioned that when you were doing your advocating from the UK and then in Japan, that you were finding like very different reactions and different um, that the advocacy needed to change for one location to the other. So what are those challenges? Sure. So I guess um, when we talk about animal advocacy and animal justice movement, obviously there are very different approaches to tackling this animal injustice issue, right? Some of them could be asking for personal transformation, whereas some other approaches are maybe working on more bigger scale systemic change. And if I was to start talking about personal change to begin with, there are street outreach initiatives across Asia that we have seen. Yes, like a lot of these initiatives were started by bilingual advocates who drew a lot of examples and inspirations from English-speaking countries. But obviously, within a short amount of time, these people have realized that obviously we cannot use the same tactics, same messaging, same slogans that we see on social media from the US or UK or Australia. Things like go vegan or meat is murder or, you know, all these slogans obviously needed to change. To begin with, like even the term vegan or veganism itself was coined in the UK in the 40s. So it is an English word. And a lot of us just started using the same word back home when we talk about animal rights, animal justice. And that in itself has already created quite a bit of resistance from the local communities because of the history of colonialism in many parts of Asia. It might have sounded like we are importing yet another Western concept or philosophy into Asia by using this English word. Uh, So there was a lot of disconnect uh, in local communities. So there has been a lot of challenges uh, for sure that um, local advocates have been trying to tackle on. And there have been really interesting um, efforts to actually think of a local terminology to replace the word veganism that actually has the same kind of philosophy to it. Because there are in some countries there are direct translation of veganism or vegan that word is usually associated with buddhism and when we use that word obviously people who don't identify as buddhists turn away from that concept as well so we have to be really mindful of like we have to be very conscious of which word to use to begin with so it's it's very, very complex and <laughs> there's a lot to unpack. And um, when we talk about systemic change, for example, there, there's a lot to unpack there as well, because there are, again, a lot of international efforts, uh, especially in talking to corporations or corporate engagement space um, in our movement. But obviously, like the tactics that are used in the West, which are quite confrontational, pointing fingers at corporations and their practices have not really worked very well in especially in countries like Japan where confrontational approach is not very appreciated so the advocates there have had to take on a very different approach which is a lot more collaborative literally being their friends to take every step together kind of thing so the type of messaging that we send out we really need to be mindful as well. Wow, that's all really, really fascinating. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's, it has to be very, very different. And I guess when we talk about systemic change, we obviously think about policy change at the government level. And obviously, in many parts of Asia, freedom of speech is at stake. And obviously, the political process and structures are very, very different from the ones we know in the West. So sometimes the traditional path that we might want to take just do not work or it's just too risky. So the top-down approach in terms of policy change, it is very difficult to to make an effective change that way. And as everybody knows, there are a lot of countries right now in Asia where human rights are at stake and um, 
it's not as easy for people outside of these countries to also think about the rights of non-human animals, obviously. So we really need to take a very pro-intersectional approach to to really work with these communities to see what they need first of all how we can support these communities first of all before we say go vegan because that might not be as easy uh, for many people in Asia talking about going vegan in some parts of Asia people some people do not even have um, access to their own kitchen facilities so just telling them to go vegan Obviously, it would not work. If you can't cook for yourself, you need to rely on what's available outdoors. And these are often uh, very meat-heavy food from uh, food stalls on the street. And so, yeah, very different types of projects are needed across Asia compared to what we see in the West. Very interesting. Yeah. So I'm so glad that the animal advocacy community is finally starting to recognize, and this is in the West, really, that we have problems with inequality in our movement, you know, that this is an issue and that we must address. Uh, we're just kind of starting to uh, to wake up to that. And you say on your website, quote, we see a need for a more diverse, inclusive, and culturally appropriate movement in Asia. And you've talked a little about this and, you know, we've kind of talked about the approaches, but um, can you talk more about this, about, I guess, about in the West being more appropriate with our outreach in Asia? Sure. So it's a very big topic. Uh, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, so there are there's a lot of interest in Asia at the moment in our movement at the moment. And uh, because of the, the the level of animal consumption, there has been a lot of international efforts in tackling that issue from the outside. And I can see that the international efforts are now trying to be more and more mindful of cultural differences and cultural nuances when they start projects and campaigns in different countries in Asia. Mm, good. And which is great because obviously we definitely need that. A campaign that worked in the US might not work at all in Pakistan, for example. And at the same time, I think that truly diverse movement means we need true inclusivity. If we want to make our movement really diverse, then we need a movement that's truly inclusive. And how do we make an inclusive movement? That's not just about adjusting campaign ideas, or that's not just about putting more faces on websites, but really about reflecting and implementing ideas from local leadership. And that is why we are really keen on cultivating local leadership in every community across Asia. Because when we talk about leadership, I think I suffer from this as well myself, growing up in Japan as a woman, coming to the UK to, to study. I have definitely issue with internalized racism and sexism. And when I think of leadership, I immediately think of someone white, a man talking on the stage uh, for a TED Talk, for example, confidently. And that's the type of leadership I immediately think of. And for the past four months, we have done research across 10 different countries across Asia. We have talked with many, many leaders across Asia. And especially with women leaders, we have witnessed some level of internalized racism and sexism where people cannot be confident with their own ideas or with their own leadership style. And I think there needs to be a lot more focus on um, appreciating, celebrating different styles of leadership and not just one type that we see a lot uh, traditionally. Yeah, and you have representatives all over Asia. When I was looking at your website, you have representatives in India and Pakistan and uh, and and I think several in China and a lot of different Southeast Asia and uh, East Asia and and all over. 
which is really, really cool. Uh, and and probably different uh, approaches in all those areas, right? Yes. Yeah, so we have we currently have staff members from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Indonesia, Myanmar, Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Japan, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. I think wow. that's all. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yes. yes. Incredible. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And uh, we are truly blessed with so many talented amazing inspiring people from all over asia and it is truly beautiful we meet every week for for our uh, coordinators meeting and it is so beautiful to see everybody from very different cultures coming together and i think keeping a workplace a safer space for everybody is one of the most important things that we focus on and us all coming from different cultures, speaking different languages with different religious beliefs. It is truly beautiful that we have one goal uh, that we all work towards. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I, I love all this work that you're doing. Just really, really wonderful. Thank you. So I read an essay in an anthology about, it was called Vegan Voices, the anthology Vegan Voices, and it was an activist in Japan, and she was talking about the challenges of how, in a, in the West, we think very much about being individuals and we, you know, we pride ourselves on, you know, thinking individually and, and so, you know, making changes, personal changes is a little easier. And in, in Asian cultures, some Asian cultures, it's, there's, there's much more emphasis on the collective and on the family and on the community and not, not standing out or not rocking the boat and not, you know, and being supportive of the community as being, as being very, very important. And so veganism is kind of seen as, being too individual. Have you um, encountered that? Or I, I'm just curious about that. Definitely. That is one of the biggest issues in some countries that we have witnessed. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Definitely, there's a lot of collectivism. Um, so there's a lot of peer pressure in your actions, your behavior. I mean, I can speak for Japan because I'm from there and I have had, I have had people come to me with with this issue exact issue and at workplace for example there are dinner occasions um, drinking occasions lunch occasions that you have to go with your colleagues and bosses and it would put you in a very awkward position if you were to ask for something special that no one else is having oh, wow. so a, a lot of people that I have met Vegan people, they, a, a lot of people that I know stay quiet about it. They are 100% vegan at home, but as soon as they leave home, they have to just give it up and eat something they don't want to eat to, to really fit in. So uh, being able to make the decision to become vegan or live as vegan is much more difficult in many parts of Asia where the culture is very collectivist. And that is why a lot of the vegan people that we meet tend to be the kind of people who have questioned the norm or status quo, who have spoken up against human rights issues and other issues, who maybe who don't work for like traditional type of workplaces who can make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. So if you work for that kind of very traditional uh, workplaces, it will make your life very, very difficult. And when you're a school student, that's very similar case because in Japan, again, like there are school meals every day. You have to drink milk. You have to have the food. You have to finish the food. Otherwise, you can't go and play, for example. <laughs> so oh, wow. there's a lot of pressure um, around eating with others, the same thing that others are eating. And if you make other choices or if you ask for alternative, then that might be seen as you being too picky and not based around ethical choices. Yeah, that was the example that uh, that was in this essay was this woman had uh, a child that was in school and she was trying to get vegan meals for the child. And it was very, very difficult. She was 
ostracized or, or you know, um, looked on badly for uh, trying to do something different um, with the food for her child. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned something about it earlier in the interview about Japan and that there's a lot of, of seafood eating, eating of fish and other seafood in Japan. And I was wondering if you approach that more maybe from an environmental standpoint, how how is it different? Because seafood, I don't think is, I mean, I guess there is a lot of seafood eaten in the West, but it's certainly not the primary meat like it is in Japan, I believe. So what's the approach there around fish eating and seafood? It's so complex, and I'm sure there are other people who can speak about this much better than I can. Um, but it is very, very complex, and it's not its not going to be resolved by just talking to individuals to stop eating fish. There has to be a lot of different approaches from top down and bottom up and all, all different angles. Um, fish eating is still a very big part of Japanese diet and in some other East Asian countries. And there's a lot to it. Um, the fishing industry is very powerful and that needs to be tackled from both directions, top down and bottom up. We cannot just tell people in the fishing industry to stop fishing for environmental reasons. We need to think about alternative livelihood for these people. And at the same time, there has to be more pressure from top down from the government as well, less subsidy and all of that. Um, so, so there's there's a lot to do there, um, and it's actually even more complex because seafood is usually uh, exported to other countries, exported around the globe. So, uh, one country in its on its own cannot solve that issue either. So, it is very very complex. Uh, maybe from more consumerist point of view, there's some hope because Japan being very good at food innovation. There are some really good um, seafood alternative brands coming up. So maybe that might be able to solve this issue a little bit going forward. But I think um, talking about alternative livelihood for people in that industry currently is going to be very important going forward. Well, coming back to your organization, Animals Alliance Asia, what have you been doing recently? What do you have coming up? Tell us more about your, your organization. Sure, thank you. So since the launch of our first conference in 2020, we have definitely expanded our capacity and expanded the types of projects we work on. So one of them was our first academy that we launched in 2022. And we actually trained 120 animal advocates from across Asia, from actually 19 countries across Asia. Wow. We designed the academy so it's useful for anybody on the advocacy journey from the beginner to more advanced. So we started talking about how to communicate and we then talked about what social justice means and how we can learn from other social justice movements in history in Asia. And then we talked about how to strategize. So even if you have a really good idea, you might have difficulty actually making that idea into an effective project. So we helped our participants with that journey. And by the end of Academy, we saw 15 new projects uh, initiated in different countries across Asia. So that's very, very exciting. And we also want to start um, tapping into really cultivating leadership across Asia. So we will be holding our first um, leadership summit uh, in 2023 to start talking more about internal organizational culture, NGO governance, people management, and leadership training in different countries. And one of the most exciting projects for, for us is our re-granting program. So at the moment, currently in our animal justice movement, a lot of the, the funding comes from the US and that is uh, dispersed around the globe at the moment. And there's a lot of language barrier there. And because of that, a lot of individuals and organizations across Asia cannot access the funding opportunities from the US. Mm. And that is why we want to launch this regranting project to start funneling more funds into initiatives across Asia 
and we will be helping them. We will be supporting them in their own language to apply for these grants and also in their strategy planning as well. So that is one of the most exciting projects going forward. And we have been spending a lot of time doing research across 10 different countries across Asia to really understand the current landscape of our movement. And we have met with hundreds of people across Asia, from people doing street outreach to current leaders and organizations. And we've had in-depth conversations with these people to really understand what their struggles are, how Animal Alliance Asia might be able to support. And uh, based on the findings, we will be launching projects across Asia um, that are relevant to each cultural context. And they would look very different from each other. For example, what we might do in the Philippines might be very different from what we do in Japan, for example. Mm. And it will the decision will be based around the findings from our research. So for example, in the Philippines, there's a lot of issue around food injustice. And so we might try to tackle that by empowering people um, around growing vegetables, community garden projects, things like that. Whereas in Japan, that might not be needed as much. So we are very excited to launch different types of projects across Asia going forward. Wow, fantastic work, Ellie. I mean, it's just, yeah, incredible. I'm so happy to hear that this is all happening. You have so many projects and programs going on and all just, I mean, you just started a couple of years ago. It's incredible. (laughs) I love it. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we do need to wrap up and we like to end the podcast by asking you, what gives you hope for the future? Right. Um, So I do definitely see hope in Asia for our movement for the future. Um, Having met so many talented, passionate individuals across Asia And there are brilliant ideas floating around across Asia. And we just cannot wait to support these ideas actually come to life um, and make an impact. And I do believe that we have very unique way of collaborating with each other across borders, beyond borders in Asia. And I think that kind of collaborative approach um, will make a real impact across Asia together. I definitely have a lot of hope for community-driven projects across Asia that are more ground up, reflecting on their needs, their passion, their voices uh, that are not mainstream at the moment. But there will be a lot of community-driven projects across Asia that we will be seeing very soon. And I also see a lot of hope And I am grateful for the type of allyship that we have been building with other movements across Asia and beyond, actually, amazing, inspiring activists from U.S. as well, of uh, people of global majority. And I think all together we can really start talking about collective liberation. And there's so much expertise within social justice movements in Asia. There are not animal justice movements, but we can definitely learn so much from them that have been successful in the same given cultural context. So I definitely see hope in there as well. Yes, uh, that's so hopeful, so incredibly hopeful. Uh, I love hearing about the vegan movement worldwide, because it must be a worldwide movement. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the West, we get very, we have just blinders on thinking that we're the only people on earth and (laughs) it's awful. We need to be aware of the rest of the world and bring everyone into this compassionate, wonderful, kind way of living. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, It was just really, really enlightening. And I'm so glad for the work that you're doing. Thank you for changing the world in Asia. Thank you so much for having me, Hope. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. 
So I don't often do this. If you're a regular listener, you will know that I do not often do this, but it is the end of the year and Compassionate Living has been challenged with a match. We have been given a very generous offer from a donor of a $20,000 match for a total of $40,000 if we can raise that money by the end of the year. This is a huge challenge for us. We could do so much with that money. So I want to ask you if you could please make a donation to this podcast. And that is a donation to our sponsoring organization, Compassionate Living. So not only are you donating to help keep this podcast on the air for next year and hopefully for many years to come, but also you'll be donating to continue all of Compassionate Living's programs our social media presence, our Humane Hoax Project with our webinars and conferences, our Ahimsa Living Project, which we're going to be expanding in 2023, and the Sonoma County Veg Fest and more. I I do a lot, (laughs) and I could use your support. There will be a donation link in the show notes of this episode, or you can just go to our website, compassionate-living.org, and donate there. And remember that any donation you make from now to the end of the year will be doubled by that match of $20,000. So if you donate $20, it becomes $40. If you donate $50, it becomes $100. We have just a really, really short time to make this very big match. So please help us out with as generous a donation as you can make. I hope that you have enjoyed this year of Hope for the Animals podcasts and being with me and on this journey of compassion. Uh, I really appreciate your support so much. We have one more episode to finish up the year, and I have some exciting episodes coming up in the next year, some great, great interviews that I'm preparing for you. So please help us out by supporting us with a donation. I appreciate all of you so much. You give me hope for the world. At the end of every interview, I ask my guests what gives them hope for the future. And for me, it's so many things. But one big thing is you, the people that listen to this podcast. You give me hope that we are going to create this beautiful, just, incredible vegan world that we all want to live in uh, by creating community like this podcast. You give me hope, so please make a donation if you can. I so appreciate it. And uh, remember, live vegan.